0: If you master your blood sugar, you master your health and longevity. So today we welcome back the blood sugar expert, Kara Collier.
1: people who kind of go the extreme and they're like, I haven't gotten my glucose above 90 for years. Like, you know, I've never, I haven't touched a carb in years <laughs> and I don't think it's as bad as the other direction. Most Americans, well, we know it's not as bad. It's certainly a better alternative, especially if you're like, I don't miss carbohydrates. Like I'm never going to eat them. But what I see happen is in that individual, they'll have once a year at their birthday, then they'll have cake. And you can see that they're now metabolically inflexible to glucose because their glucose levels will go to 300 when they have some carbohydrates because their body's like, I don't know how to do this anymore. And we can usually correct that much faster than correcting the other type of metabolic inflexibility. But if you want to be able to have cake sometimes and not be so stuck in now one approach and one protocol, which I believe is more optimal, being able to like, flexible in circumstances, then we have to make sure that we're still maintaining you know, the flexibility to use any type of fuel source.
0: We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper. Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Cam Podcast. You can learn more about me over at benazadi.com. Today, we welcome back the brilliant Kara Collier, who was previously on the Keto Cam Podcast a couple years ago, episode 277, where we took a deep dive into NutriSense's Continuous Glucose Monitor. I love a CGM, Continuous Glucose Monitor, as one of my favorite biohacking tools to really understand what your food, your stress, your lifestyle is doing to your body. And if you master your blood glucose, you will master your health. That I know with certainty. So we're going to get into some really amazing topics, first and foremost, because we both geek out. But we, we talk about the process of insulin resistance. We know that most people in America, but probably around the world too, have some form of insulin resistance. And insulin resistance leads to type 2 diabetes, And type 2 diabetes leads to heart disease, kidney failure, infections, strokes, and death, essentially. What if we could stop it in its tracks as it progresses? How do you even know? We'll get into that. We get into the different macronutrients and how they produce different hormonal responses, including glucose and insulin, but also glucagon. And you're gonna hear about protein stimulating glucagon to balance glucose in a healthy person. But if somebody is not metabolically healthy, it can actually create glucose and create too much gluconeogenesis and potentially lower ketones. But if you stick with it, as you'll learn, that begins to normalize. So there's a myth around there surrounding protein and keto. We'll get into that for you. We get into three little tips for you to reverse insulin resistance or prevent it, which is lowering your carbs, aka keto, fasting and lifting weights. Kara and I both agree that we love keto, but it's not something we recommend long-term. And then we get into reactive hypoglycemia. How do you overcome that? What is that? You'll get to learn all about that. A lot of you might have it and you're not even aware of it. We also discuss, of course, A1C testing, which is your three-month average of your blood sugar. And what happens when your A1C is classified as a diabetic the She states that the medical textbooks show that sixty to seventy percent of your beta cells are damaged beyond repair at that point of diagnosis for type two diabetes. Now, I asked her, does she believe that to be the case because I've seen with my keto camp academy students their ability to reverse their type two diabetes after years of this diagnosis. So how could that be true? How could 60 to 70% of the beta cells be lost beyond repair if I've seen the opposite? And she actually has seen the opposite too. So the interesting point here is that that's what the medical textbooks say. So when a conventional doctor or the American Diabetes Association says, we cannot reverse diabetes, it's beyond repair, they're looking at that research that shows to 67% of beta cells are lost at that point of diagnosis. I don't believe that to be the case. And you'll hear Kara's thoughts on that as well. Then we get into glucose testing. Of course, you could test glucose with the finger prick. That is a great option. We, we love and use Keto Mojo. But then the, the most accurate, best way to do it is with the CGM. So if you've never heard of a continuous glucose monitor, you'll hear about how that works. We'll get into the optimal numbers to hit. So if you are testing glucose or you're going to test glucose, write these numbers down. You want to hit these numbers. Fasting glucose... Postprandial glucose, meaning after eating. And let's say your postprandial glucose is a little high. She'll give you some tips on how to lower that. And she's just going to share why you never want your blood glucose to go over 140, how that could be bad for your blood vessels. And also the myth, especially a lot of people who do keto and wear a CGM, the myth that I want to keep my glucose as level as possible, meaning I never want it to go over 90. Well, that's not necessarily the goal, and you're going to hear why it's okay for glucose spikes as long as you have a proper insulin response and it doesn't go over 140. We'll get into berberine and walking after a meal. I'm going to share with her some of Dr. Gundry's research on why he believes long-term ketosis creates insulin resistance and her thoughts on that. We get into the, the folks over at Mastering Diabetes. If you've ever heard of them, they are a group of of plant-based doctors teaching a plant-based diet to reverse diabetes. But what I found on on this episode from Kara, they're working primarily with type 1 diabetes. It's a different ballgame. So we'll get into what they're doing and why I don't agree with what they're doing for type 2 diabetics and so much more. You're going to get an opportunity to get a CGM. For many years, a continuous glucose monitor, there were a lot of barriers. Your doctor would need to write a prescription, but your doctor would typically only write a prescription if you are type 2 diabetic. But why do you want to wait until that point? So stupid. Why would we wait until diagnosis to be able to get a tool? That tool would have prevented the diagnosis. So what NutriSense has done, and I love them for this, they've removed the barrier. They write the prescription for you, send you the CGM, and their app is incredible because there's a registered dietitian. And when I say registered dietitian, the ones that are keeping up with the research, not the ones that are looking at uh, big food companies' research. <laughs> so they are on board with keto and fasting, all the things we teach. So you get a registered dietitian in the app, you get to ask them questions, they get to look at your numbers. There's so many benefits to that. We'll talk about that. So you'll get an opportunity, you have an opportunity to get your hands on a NutriSense Continuous Glucose Monitor right now. All you need to do is go to NutriSense.io slash KetoCamp and use the code Ben30 at checkout and you can get $30 off your CGM. We'll talk more about that later and we'll put a link down below. Before I bring her on, I want to take a minute to get to the Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This review comes from Kimberly in Colorado. Five-star review titled, Amazing Thank You. Ben, I first heard you during the sugar, Quit Sugar Summit and I have to say, I'm a huge fan. In such a short amount of time, I've learned so much from you. Thank you for all the educating you do. The world is in such need of this. I am listening to your podcast and learning so much. Kimberly, thank you. I love the folks over at the Quick Sugar Summit. I will be a part of more of those in the future. And I'm grateful that our paths crossed during that summit. And you're now listening to the show. Thank you so much, Kimberly. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review as of yet, please do so on whatever platform you're listening from because it really, really helps the show grow. And maybe I'll read your review on the next episode. One quick thing before I bring on Kara. In my Keto Camp Academy, which is our signature online course, we have everything I've learned in 14 years regarding keto, fasting, keto flexing, built out in a step-by-step system. We also offer coaching. And if you'd like to work with me, if you want me to be your coach, along with uh, the Keto Camp coaches, we have Coach Alina, Coach Becky, Coach Sean, I encourage you to message me on Instagram with the word energy, E-N-E-R-G-Y. My Instagram handle is at the Benazati. And I'll get you some details. You know, one of the cool things about being a member is if you are testing your glucose, we could actually fine tune your lifestyle to help you out with your numbers. And we love looking at your CGM numbers or your Keto Mojo numbers and giving us some data And we do that a lot. So if you want us to actually help you along this journey, please message me on Instagram. At the Benazadi is my handle, but message me with the word energy. Okay, here is Kara Collier. Kara Collier is a registered dietitian. She started her career working in the ICU. And she noticed so many people who enter the ICU are there for lifestyle-related chronic conditions. And she wanted to be ahead of the curve. Instead of treating them after the fact, she wanted to help them prevent it. And she now is an incredible resource on blood glucose. She's the founder of NutriSense, one of my favorite CGM companies. And she is coming back on the show right now to give us a masterclass on glucose. So here is Kara Collier. Hey, Kara. Welcome back to the KetoCam podcast.
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me back. Excited to chat.
0: Me too. We are going to have a lot of fun today. So those listening and watching, grab a piece of paper, take your kids out of the bedroom and take a lot of notes because we're going to geek out. Kara was on the Keto Chem podcast a couple of years ago. It was actually episode 277. We're getting towards episode 500. And you shared your backstory working the ICU and what you saw uh, cause versus effect. And if you want to listen to that, we'll put a link for that down below. Today, we're gonna go right into the interview in terms of the the research that you've been doing with NutriSense and what you've been seeing. Uh, We know, Kara. I actually got an email from NutriSense today that showed that uh, 88% of American adults are unhealthy. And I've been sharing that study from the University of North Carolina uh, that showed that, and that was before COVID, it's probably 90% plus. And why is my question, Kara? Like this process of insulin resistance, like how does that actually happen in the body? Is it just carbohydrates? What is the process here?
1: Yeah, it's a great question to just dive right into. Um, It's incredibly important. So if anyone's not familiar with the statistic, I know it's uh, been thrown around a lot recently, is estimated 88% of the population is not metabolically healthy. And as you mentioned, I think that statistic's a little bit outdated now. And if I had to guess, it's closer to 95% plus are not optimally healthy because those criteria are also based off of the very standard diagnostic cutoffs for metabolic syndrome, which includes traditional cutoffs for waist circumference, fasting blood sugar, HDL, um, other cholesterol metrics. And these, as we know, like the fasting glucose level that they use for this is 100 milligrams per deciliter as being unhealthy, and that's capping that 88% in there. And we know that it's actually more optimal to have a fasting glucose between 70 and 90. So if we really used the more cutting-edge research of what is optimal, I would guess it's a very, very small percentage of Americans who are within the truly optimal metabolic range. So that's just painting the picture of just how important this is. And really, insulin resistance is that core foundation of which good health is built. And so if majority of Americans, majority of humans on the globe have poor metabolic health, that's why we see such a sick population because it all starts there, it's the foundation. And an easy way or an analogy I use to kind of describe what's happening with insulin resistance is thinking about the boy who cries wolf because the hallmarks, the two key pathophysiology that's happening with insulin resistance is hyperinsulinemia which just means higher than normal insulin levels but also decreased insulin sensitivity so the cells are also not responding to that insulin signaling as well as they should so if you think about the old tale of the boy who cries wolf you know if you constantly are crying out more than you need to that's that hyperinsulinemia too much signal constantly being stimulated eventually people start to ignore that message because it doesn't have as much meaning. You get dull to that message over and over. You know, people stop listening to that boy who's crying wolf. The cells stop being so sensitive to insulin because they're so overstimulated by it. So if we think about what is happening here, what is kind of the root cause, those are the two changes that are occurring. And then it's going to have this whole downstream effect And those changes take decades to actually happen to a point where we hit a tipping point where we see something like an actual diagnosis of diabetes or cardiovascular disease or dementia, where it's really the absolute extreme of metabolic dysfunction. These changes are slowly happening over time. So then it's kind of what is causing high output of insulin? What is causing decreased insulin sensitivity? it is definitely not just one thing. So that's also why I always try to explain to people if if there ever is just a one quick fix or one reason our bodies are complex and it's not usually that simple. There's typically multifactorial reasons why these changes might be happening. And often for a lot of people, it's compounded reasonings, coming together which is only amplifying the outcome which is poor metabolic health. So again multifactorial you can really think about diet something like a very high carbohydrate diet especially high in refined carbohydrates sugar you know easily digestible carbohydrates Also, a diet high in inflammatory oils, combining those two things together, and also just a diet low in nutrient density and high in energy consumption, a lot of that is going to drive that outcome. The other thing, eating around the clock, constantly stimulating insulin is going to have a similar effect. More factors like not getting enough sleep is going to decrease our body's ability to be insulin sensitive being under a constant hum of chronic stress is going to impair our ability to process that insulin signaling. Things like air pollution, you know, other environmental toxins, smoking, being overweight in general, being sedentary, all of these things can amplify that effect. And so again, there are a lot of risk factors we can go through, more of them in more detail, but it's not one specific thing. It's this culmination of these poor lifestyle habits, essentially, that can drive this pathophysiology, which then breaks down our metabolic health, which then leads to some of these most common chronic conditions. But again, it's it's decades in the making before we start to actually get to a diagnosis. So by the time we hit a diagnosis of type two diabetes, it's estimated that 60 to 70% of our beta cells, which is what produce insulin, are damaged beyond repair. So it's not that when we hit a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, that suddenly that's like the first warning sign that something's not working. That's when the system has broken to the extent that now things are truly not functioning. We're having these really negative outcomes. So that's why, you know, I'm really focused on how do we catch these things sooner? How do we instill these healthy habits in people sooner? It doesn't mean that we can can't do a lot for that person who just got diagnosed with diabetes there is so so much you can do to improve the outcomes but the sooner you can catch these early warning signs that are happening you know in the beginning stages the much easier to kind of repair some of that damage and put yourself in a more positive trajectory
0: that was really well said Kara um, and I want to unpack that a little bit uh, and I want to just have I have a clarifying question on what you just said about 60 to 70 percent of our beta cells, are damaged beyond repair by the point of diabetes diagnosis. So, are you saying when somebody has an A1C, they go to their doctor, the A1C is 6.5, 6.4 or higher, at that point, 60 to 7% of that beta function is already lost? Is that what you're saying? That is correct. And you're saying beyond repair, meaning you can't get that sensitivity back, that 60 to 70% back?
1: That is what is estimated in some of the literature. We have seen some really amazing improvements in glucose levels and insulin levels in people who have had diabetes for years. And so, what I don't think is being researched is what's happening when we're doing alternative approaches to improve that beta cell function. But in the traditional literature, it is shown that that those beta cell functions in tissue in the pancreas have been truly damaged to the point that they look non-functional. So I would say it's a little bit up for debate, but it is you know documented in the literature that it's it's true damage to the beta cell functions.
0: That makes a lot of sense because that's why they, the American Diabetes Association and most conventional doctors, they truly believe that you can't reverse type 2 diabetes because that's what's being shown yep. to them. But you get into my world, and I'm not going to say this is Kara's world because I'm not going to put these words in your mouth. You get into my academy, we get people off their type 2 diabetes, Medicaid, their metformin with their doctor, their insulin. We see it all the time. So I'm up to debate that it can be repaired, and I don't agree with what it shows in the literature because I see it all the time. And that's me saying it, not Kara, just to say that. Okay, going back to what you said. It's twofold. It is a problem of hyperinsulinemia, which is more of an accurate way of describing insulin resistance. And then the cell sensitivity is also decreasing. There's um, inflammation, the message is not being heard. The boy who cried wolf, you shout, you shout, you shout. You stop listening. And it makes a lot of sense. Kind of like, I'm gonna piggyback off of your analogy. It's like people who have children and you yell at your kids to go clean their room. They listen to you at first. Okay, dad's yelling, mom's yelling, but you keep yelling at them, they stop listening. So when you are type 2 diabetic uh, and you take insulin for those who take insulin you're shouting louder so they'll listen to you but over time you got to keep shouting keep shouting so the solution is not to just keep shouting it's to give you give yourself kind of a break a reset right give yourself a little bit of a gap to kind of recover and gain that sensitivity back we know that there's multiple reasons why somebody will have decreased cell sensitivity and increased uh, insulin production but maybe you could share your the top three ways to kind of reverse this trend for people? What are the top three things we can do right now?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things, especially if you're seeing kind of those creeping levels of insulin, creeping levels of glucose going up, and then you're seeing this poor, you know, response, especially if you try something like a glucose challenge. And if your glucose levels are really uncontrolled, that's a good signal that that insulin function, that insulin sensitivity is not where we want it to be. And so there's a couple things that we'll typically lean on in the case of somebody with insulin resistance. One is the lever of diet. So carbohydrate restriction, you have to do it. It's like putting fuel into the flames if you're trying to address insulin resistance, but then you're constantly stimulating insulin with the diet. So you have to reduce that insulin load from the diet the hard stop. <laughs> like what you know what we're taught in dietetics, you know I'm a registered dietitian by trade, what we're taught for a type 2 diabetic is carbohydrate controlled diet. So that means, you know, you want to have 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrate at each meal so you're making sure you're spread it out and you control the carbohydrates so you're not having big glucose spikes if the second you have a patient of yours that is wearing a CGM and you're seeing the actual data and they have type two diabetes, even if they're on insulin therapy or medication, and if you give them that diet, you very, very, very quickly can learn firsthand with your own eyes that that does not work because what's gonna happen is this huge glucose roller coaster that you're never gonna get those glucose values back into optimal ranges because the body just cannot process that anymore. So have to reduce insulin load of the diet, have to reduce carbohydrates, and really focus on nutrient-dense protein and fat and other you know, non-starchy vegetables as tolerated. Let
0: me, let me ask you this then, and I agree with you, but how do these doctors, like those mastering diabetes guys, they teach reversing diabetes mm-hmm. or helping diabetics with a vegan approach, which is high-carbohydrate-like? How are they getting away with that? I mean, they're getting some results, but what what are they seeing that we're not that we're not seeing in this conversation?
1: They are getting some results and I've spoken with them several times and I think there are several things that I think that um, they're drawing potentially some, conclusions that I wouldn't agree with. One is they're working primarily with type one diabetics, which is a much different physiology. Oh. They they are type one diabetic. Oh, well. I didn't know that. Okay, and a, and a lot of their patients are type one diabetic, which is a different physiology. Yeah. And you can't apply the same lessons learned to type one diabetics. So for people who don't know type one, you inherently your beta cell functions are damaged actually damaged, not from lifestyle, not over time, but usually at a young age. And so you have to take insulin therapy in order to control your glucose levels. So the lever you have as a type one diabetic is to improve your insulin sensitivity. And so that is the modality that they are going is that they believe that high fat diet is actually dulling your insulin sensitivity, which is a whole nother like web that we can get into. And so they do see some results with that. I have not seen success in those who are insulin resistant or type two diabetic with going that route it puts people on a glucose roller coaster, in my perspective. So what I have found to be most successful is to significantly reduce the carbohydrate load. And sometimes it doesn't have to be forever. Sometimes, you know, you might be able to include carbohydrates here or there as you become more metabolically flexible. But the approach I've seen is, is you really have to remove the carbohydrates and get your body in a different metabolic state. Agreed. ASAP.
0: Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I didn't know that that they primarily treat type one diabetes, which makes sense. You know that they could use a plant based approach, but you, you're right. It's it's. Uh, I mean, it's just it's kind of like common physiology. You look at the three macronutrients and you see which macronutrient creates the most glucose and insulin response. And of course, it's carbohydrates, and it depends on the carbs. And then protein. Maybe you could share a little bit about protein because protein there is potential uh, gluconeogenesis, and there's a phase two insulin response, but it's not as much as carbs. So maybe you could uh, share the difference between the insulin response from protein versus carbohydrates.
1: Yeah. And we get this question a lot because protein can stimulate an insulin response. And so a lot of people wonder if they should really minimize protein intake if they want to remain you know, metabolically healthy and not lead towards insulin resistance. And so protein is different in that Carbohydrates respond in the most insulin response. Fat is the least, and then protein is kind of in the middle. But interestingly, protein also stimulates a glucagon response, which is the hormone that is kind of the yin and yang of insulin has the opposite effect as what insulin does. And so typically in a metabolically healthy individual, when we eat protein, our glucose levels remain very stable. And so somebody who might actually be insulin resistant, so when we first maybe we're doing some dietary changes for a type two diabetic. They do not produce adequate insulin or they are not as insulin sensitive to counteract that normal response that might be happening for a metabolically healthy person when they eat protein. And so sometimes for a type 2 diabetic they might eat a protein rich diet and actually see a glucose bump. But what we see is if they stick with it and they become more and more metabolically healthy over time that that glucose bump decreases. Mm. And if they were to eat that same meal but add in carbohydrates with it, then it would be a much higher glucose response that has a really hard time coming down. And so I Reiterate to people not to be alarmed if you do show some signs you are having some insulin resistance and you're seeing a glucose response to protein that I s- still believe it's a very important component of the diet to be protein rich for multiple factors. One is it also really drives satiety and it's also you know not having the same dramatic impact on insulin that carbohydrates are having. So it's it's a little nuanced, but I don't want people to be afraid of protein, but it also leads me to then the second lever. So we're talking about we got to make nutrition changes. That's going to be one of the most important things if we're trying to address insulin resistance, metabolic dysfunction. And then the second thing is we also have to implement some fasting protocols. So that's where it's like protein may be stimulating a small insulin response, but overall it is a net positive, but if you're eating you know, a protein snack every hour for 16 hours straight every day, then suddenly like we had to put it into context of how you are consuming the protein as well. And so just because protein is what part of what I'm recommending as a solid foundation to treating or, you know, addressing some resistance doesn't mean then that we're going to snack on protein all day long. So we also have to really focus on a, a sustainable fasting routine for somebody. And again, just like The carbohydrate restriction, it might be more extreme in the beginning if you're type two diabetic or you have a lot of metabolic dysfunction or showing a lot of signs of insulin resistance. And then we might be able to get into just a more like daily, regular intermittent fasting schedule as you show some metabolic improvement over time. But removing uh, some of the food constantly being fed to your body is going to help your body learn how to use its own energy and regain some of that insulin sensitivity over time. Um, So that's that's another big lever that we really want to pull when we're trying to improve someone's metabolic function.
0: Did you know there's actually beverages that can supercharge your fasting results? My favorite, which is a keto powerhouse, is apple cider vinegar. There's a ton of research showing apple cider vinegar has been beneficial for boosting your metabolism, suppressing appetite, reducing fat storage. That's because apple cider vinegar contains acetic acid which is a short-chain fatty acid that's been shown to promote weight loss in those ways. Also, apple cider vinegar is one of the best ways to balance your blood sugars. A study showed apple cider vinegar improved insulin sensitivity after high-carb meals up to 34%. We also know that apple cider vinegar stimulates digestion, acts as a bile stimulant to help break down the fat you're eating on keto. Another research study showed apple cider vinegar protects against mineral depletion. If you're like me, you probably don't like the taste of apple cider vinegar. I think it tastes disgusting. That's why my go-to is Paleo Valley's Apple Cider Vinegar Complex. This is an organic blend of apple cider vinegar and four more gut and health supportive superfoods. I take this before my meals. I take it before coffee. And this enhances my fast and my blood sugar regulation. You'll find it contains organic apple cider vinegar, organic turmeric, organic ginger, organic Ceylon cinnamon, and organic lemon. Since you are a listener of the Keto Camp podcast, we worked out an exclusive discount code for you to get the apple cider vinegar complex capsules and all of the products over at Paleo Valley. All you need to do is head to paleovalley.com and use the coupon code KETOCAMP15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. By the way, they got delicious beef sticks and an awesome organ meat complex. Go check them out, paleovalley.com. That is KetoCamp15 at checkout. We'll also drop a link down below in the show notes. Uh, Before you get to the third lover here, quick question on the protein. If somebody is doing protein and they're seeing... Some glucose being created from that. You, you said stick with it; the more metabolically flexible you get, the better that'll that'll show. But I, I've, I've kind of tinkered with that. And I want to hear your thoughts of adding more fat to that protein, and it's kind of it kind of help with that glucose response from the protein. Have you seen that as well?
1: Yeah. And I think it, it, again, it's contextual where what is your baseline metabolic health? Because somebody who's really metabolically healthy, you know, maybe like yourself or myself, I could eat an extremely high protein meal and I'll see a glucose response. And it was probably just because it was a little bit too much. And that's kind <laughs> of so that, bad. And it's thing. not necessarily a bad yeah. thing. But yeah, you can balance that with some fat if you want to even it out a little bit. Or, you know, maybe it's the only meal I'm going to eat that day, and so it's okay, as opposed to, like, if I'm eating again in, like, an hour or two, I don't want to be doing that, of course, constantly. Whereas somebody who is the more maybe insulin-resistant, metabolically unflexible, they might see that just from a normal amount of protein. And adding some fat, we do see that usually to be helpful, but they might see that bump regardless just because their system isn't able to process it as well. And it might just get better with time typically is what we see.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. What's the biggest steak you've ever eaten, (laughs) Kara?
1: I can eat a lot. People are always shocked by how much I can eat. Uh, I'm a pretty small girl, but I'm very physically active. So I actually tend to eat a lot of food. The biggest steak. I don't know. I could probably put two pounds down if I if I tried. Wow. <laughs> what about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's I think, yeah, 24 ounces I've done before. Super stuff, but 24 ounce steak. Yeah. Next time we're at the Commodore, we'll, we'll compete against each other. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most steak. Okay, so the first lever was lower your carbs. Makes sense. Carbs create the most insulin response. Uh, fat barely does anything for insulin. And then fasting was the second tip. You know, you might be a little bit more extreme or um, committed to a longer fast. And then eventually you could do less fasting. But in the beginning, fasting number two. And then what's the third lever here?
1: Lift weights. Yeah. Try to build up your skeletal muscle as much as possible. Exercise of any type would be great. Like if someone's like, "I'm not you're never gonna catch me like lifting weights. Again, contextual, got to do what somebody's willing to do. Any type of exercise is beneficial. But we see the biggest bang for your buck if we get somebody to try to add more skeletal, lean muscle, lean body mass on on their body, lift weights, be physically active because that skeletal muscle is one of the most important tissues for some of that insulin stimulated and non non insulin stimulated glucose disposal. And a lot of um, what is believed to be kind of the source of some of that insulin sensitivity issues at a cellular level happens in the muscle. So the more we can start to get our muscles to become insulin sensitive, again, it has a pretty dramatic effect on the rest of the body and our overall glucose tolerance, insulin levels, metabolic function.
0: Yeah, lift some weights. And that could start off with just, you know, you walking and and doing some body weight stuff. And then that could lead to more, you know, picking up some weights. But wherever you're at with your activity level, you're right. It's uh, the more muscle mass you have, the more of this sponge you have that's able to absorb the glucose. So it's not being packed away in body fat and damaging some other parts of your body. Okay. So those are the three steps. And you have, um, well, obviously you're with NutriSense. You're the founder of NutriSense and CGM is an amazing tool. I get asked this all the time, Kara. Ben, if you had to choose one biohacking tool because there's so many, what would that biohacking tool be? And I always have trouble and then I think, oh, a CGM, easy, a continuous glucose monitor because it gives you so much data, what stress is doing to you, what poor sleep does to you, what foods do to you that you might have a sensitivity to, just gives you everything. Uh, And I love that you made it available to the population because as you know... For so many years, there were a lot of barriers. You're not di- too diabetic. I'm not going to write you a prescription. The doctors would say. Now we can bypass that, and you're able to actually write a prescription with people who qualify and have them work with a dietitian in your app. I've used your CGM for five months. Uh, you know, kind of scattered around, and I've done some experiments with it, and it's awesome. Uh, not only is the CGM pretty cool for me to look at, but you include a dietitian in the app, and I get to ask the question to the dietitian. all these questions that I have. You get to ask the question if you have the CGM. So let's get into the CGM. What are the optimal ranges? For those who are going to get a CGM, and we're going to give you a special link to get it. What are the optimal ranges for us to hit with our blood sugar when we're fasting, uh, postprandial? I want you to give us the optimal ranges, not good ranges, Kara. I know you said 70 to 90, which is a good range, but what is the optimal range we should be hitting?
1: Yeah, so we can look at it both in kind of what's happening in the fasted state, what's happening after meals, and then also kind of at what's happening in the day. So that fasted value, again, if we talk about the cutoffs for metabolic syndrome of that, you know, 88% of Americans, what's being included to that? they're looking at a fasting glucose below 100 but we know that that is not optimal 70 to 90 is that better range sometimes there is some research that's showing more of like a 70 to 85 the research isn't as thorough as the research that's showing 70 to 90 so we know for a fact that we want to stay in that range for sure when we're an optimal or when we're fasted Some people will get below 70, especially if they're following a ketogenic diet. And so one thing, just on a note of that, is it's not inherently bad to go below 70. If you're showing signs of hypoglycemia, that's when we really are more concerned, especially in non-diabetics. Our bodies have pretty good, robust systems in place to make sure that we're not getting hypoglycemic. So really, we want to just monitor for symptoms such as like dizziness, you know, brain fog, feeling like you're sweating, like you're nauseous. And so if your glucose is above 55 and you're without those symptoms, then there's no signs that that's a bad thing either, especially if your ketones are high, because it's really about an energy system. If your ketones are high and your fasting glucose is 60, not concerned about that at all. So that's kind of fasting glucose. Next, we want to look at, if we're just looking at a snapshot of the day, what is your average glucose Um, Again, if we're looking at traditional metrics, if we look at A1C is kind of the equivalent to an average glucose level, normal, which is under pre-diabetic levels would be 117 milligrams per deciliter. But we know from the research that you really want to aim for something closer to 105 or lower which would be equivalent to more of a 5.2% A1C um, for those who maybe don't have a CGM yet and are just kind of looking at a comparison of their A1C value. And then next we have postprandial, which is what happens to your glucose levels after you eat or the fluctuations throughout the day. And again, traditional values are going to say a peak value under 200, which is really high, (laughs) Crazy. or they're going to look at less than 142 hours after eating. So if you've ever heard of an oral glucose tolerance test, you drink a bunch of sugar and then they see what happens to your glucose levels. And that um, test, traditional diagnostic criteria are looking at less than 142 hours after. But what we're looking at from an optimal standpoint is less than 140 ever, not two hours after you eat, but just kind of ever. And really, if you're following, again, a strict ketogenic diet, we don't expect to see glucose go much above 120, that would be uh, more realistic, unless you're doing really intense exercise, which we can touch on normal for glucose to go higher in that in that circumstance. But we want to see it below 140 at all points of time, no matter what you're eating. And then we also want to see your glucose two hours after you eat be closer to 100 or less, and so not that 142 hours after. That's much higher than that's what we believe to be optimal. Yeah.
0: So there, there you go. You know, if you're hitting those numbers that Kara just mentioned, your protocol is working really well. And if you're not hitting it, you, you got to make some tweaks. So I'm gonna just recap fasting glucose 70 to 90. That's uh, milligrams per deciliter post-prandial should never go over 140. We always want it below 140. It's okay if it goes to 125 or 115 as long as you're seeing it drop back down yep. under 100 or back to baseline uh, about a, a two to three hours after you eat. Here's something that I think we could agree on that people in the keto space don't like about what I teach. I love keto. I think it's fantastic, but I do not teach long-term ketosis. I don't think... The goal is to just have a flat line of glucose. We want to use the insulin. We want to be able to use those beta cells. So what are your thoughts on somebody saying, I'm so proud of myself. For the last six months, my glucose never went over 90. Is that a problem?
1: I do believe it is. Yeah, I think we could definitely agree on this. And this is where I think we take the idea of metabolic flexibility sometimes in this space too far almost. So 90, 95% of Americans cannot utilize glucose as an energy source very well. So we're trying to train the average American how to be more metabolically flexible, which means relying more on fat as a primary energy source. But then sometimes we can go to so much of an other extreme where now we've become metabolically inflexible to using glucose as an energy source. And that's not really the goal. Like I always explain to people, the goal is to be like a hybrid car where you're using your energy system as efficiently as possible. And that means knowing how to use whichever energy system is most useful for the moment. So maybe sometimes you need that quick burst of energy, and sometimes maybe you want the slower energy, and you want to be able to be flexible in all circumstances to all fuel types. And you can achieve that by, you know, periods of, Ketosis, periods of more carbohydrates, doing some kind of cyclical ketosis. But first, you have to make sure you're kind of metabolically flexible at baseline. And so I've seen a lot of people who kind of go the extreme and they're like, I haven't gotten my glucose above 90 for years. Like, you know, I've never, I haven't touched a carb in years. (laughs) And I don't think it's as bad as the other direction. Most Americans, well, we know it's not as bad. It's certainly a better alternative, especially if you're like, I don't miss carbohydrates. Like I'm never going to eat them. But what I see happen is in that individual, they'll have once a year at their birthday then they'll have cake and you can see that they're now metabolically inflexible to glucose because their glucose levels will go to 300 Mm. when they have some carbohydrates because their body's like i don't know how to do this anymore and we can usually correct that much faster than correcting the other type of metabolic inflexibility but if you want to be able to have cake sometimes and not be so stuck in now one approach and one protocol which I believe is more optimal being able to like be flexible in circumstances, then we have to make sure that we're still maintaining, you know, the flexibility to use any type of fuel source. So I am not a proponent typically for long-term ketosis either, but I'm definitely a proponent for using ketosis as a a tool in your toolbox and how to be metabolically flexible.
0: I agree 100%. You know, the name of the game is metabolic flexibility. Uh, I think when we put dogma in front of health, it becomes a problem. And you you said it. There's two types of metabolic inflexibility. For most people, it's you're only burning sugar. You forgot Mm -hmm. how to burn fat. We got to teach you how to burn fat and get into ketosis. Very, very important, especially for those 88% plus. But then, you, you know, a lot of people, they fall in love with keto, they change their handle to Keto Kathy or carnivore Kelly or whatever it is, and they they kind of put themselves in a box, and then it's like two years now their thyroid has slowed down, and you know, God forbid they have a piece of cake because their, their sugars go over three hundred. So that's another form of inflexibility, and the solution is to become metabolically flexible, uh, and that's going to be different. So the way that we teach in, in our Keto Camp Academy is. We will, three to four months in ketosis, and then we assess: Do you still have insulin resistance? What's your A1C? What's your postprandial glucose? We'll put a CGM on you. If you're good, you know you've reversed all that. Then we start what I call keto flexing, where you have one day out of the week with healthy, high carbohydrate uh, meal. You, you uh, dial down the fasting, dial down the fat, and, and you bump yourself out of ketosis. Like, and it's a good thing. We celebrate it. It's like a whole paradigm shift. People are thinking, oh, I'm out of ketosis and they're angry, but we're actually like, good job, we are out of ketosis. So there's a right way to do it. Uh, And I think that's important because that's more sustainable. And that's, in reality, kind of what our ancestors did. They were in ketosis, they got out of ketosis. It's like the metabolic flexibility is the key, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's exactly the key. I love that approach as well because in the end you know, it's really, it's about that switching. It's the ability to teach your body how to quickly switch and adapt. And it's usually more enjoyable for people in the long run as well. So it's kind of like a win-win. And this is where the CGM can be a really powerful tool because I completely understand if you used to have diabetes, used to be a hundred pounds heavier and you Reverse that or corrected that with a ketogenic diet, it can be really, really scary to reintroduce carbohydrates and change your approach. That can be very frightening. And so a tool like a CGM can give you the data, the empowerment that okay, I can still maintain. Good glucose levels while in having some carbohydrates here or there, or I know this is the amount of carbohydrates I can have at this time of day that works for me still. And so a lot of people will put the CGM on assuming that they're going to have to be more restrictive. They're like, I'm never going to be able to eat carbohydrates and this is going to show it. Or that, you know, I'm never going to be able to eat the foods I like, but actually they usually walk away with more flexibility because they see, oh, I can actually have 30 grams of fruit at my breakfast Breakfast meal after I've worked out and my glucose levels are really stable and it's okay, but I can't have four pieces of pizza at midnight on Friday. <laughs> you, know, yeah. like you start to learn which things work for you and which things don't. And it can be really empowering. And it's less scary when you kind of have some hard facts that are coming from your body rather than like, I'm jumping into something that's totally you know different from what led to my success to get here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's different ways to Flex yourself out of ketosis. You know, if somebody does still have a little bit of some insulin resistance and they want to practice flexing, we do it with like just a high calorie, high protein day instead of a high carb day, right? Just to change yeah. things up, and then eventually they could incorporate some carbs and use a CGM to see what it's doing. One of the benefits that I discovered with your your Nutrisense CGM. Is the fact that the dietitian in there is looking at my numbers, and like I want those numbers to look good for the dietitian <laughs> reviewing my numbers, so it's like it kind of holds me accountable because I know that this dietitian is seeing my numbers. It's not just me, and she's or he's going to ask me about it. You know, we're going to have a conversation. So, you know, if you have a coach looking at your numbers, or you have the Nutrisense uh, CGM, and you have a dietitian. That's a a really cool benefit that I became aware of as I started to wear the CGM. Have you noticed that with other people as well?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It always helps when you're like, someone's going to hold me accountable to this, which is why a coach can be so powerful, or even just like a workout buddy, you're like, I want to skip today, but I know so and so is gonna, you know, be there. So I can't miss it. It's really powerful. It's really powerful. And just so people are aware, you know, I have trained and overseen our entire dietitian staff. So they are very open-minded to all of the approaches that we're talking about today, too. I know a lot of people come into it and they're like, I don't want a dietitian. They're going to go tell me to eat a bunch of grains.
0: Not these dieticians. They're not going
1: to. Yeah, not yeah. these dietitians. So they're awesome. And, and that's part of the power of both the data and the coach that people don't realize when they first start the program is the behavior change element you go into it because you're like, Oh, I want to know how I respond to this. Or I want to know what my numbers look like with my normal routine. And you do gain all of that information. At first, it is an information gathering tool, something to learn about yourself information you wouldn't normally have. But usually, then it starts to shift to a behavior change tool, you start to learn 80% of the knowledge that you need to know. And then it turns into this accountability tool. So not only is the data going to hold you accountable, it can be much easier when you're not wearing the sensor to be like, oh, I'm just going to have this cookie or, you know, I'm going to eat late, even though I want to be fasting at night, uh, because there's no data to be like, actually, this, you know, hold you accountable. All of a sudden you have this immediate consequence that you see in your numbers. And then there's also the human accountability aspect. <sighs> which some people respond really well to the human part more that actually really drives them versus some people are more driven by the accountability of the data. Sometimes it's a combination. It's really like a personality thing at times, but together it's really powerful for true behavior change and I'm sure you've experienced this working with real people, coaching people. What's most important at the end of the day is sustainability. You know, How are we going to make these habits, these things that you really want to do, how can we make sure that you actually do them in the long term and not just for a month or for a couple days? And so finding ways to truly drive behavior change and make habits sticky is really where we see the best success. And that's a combination of you know, the coaching, the data, feeling better, getting that momentum, all of those things are super important for long term success.
0: Yeah. And it's, and it's valuable. The CGM is valuable, not just for somebody who is trying to get healthy and is insulin resistant. It's, it's very valuable for them. Like that should be a priority. If you have insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, it is almost essential that you throw on a CGM, but also for the biohacker like myself and you, Kara, and then those who are listening, yeah. and to do different experiments. And I'll share a few of the experiments I did. And I have so many things I could talk to you about. I just love talking to you. <laughs> so uh, you know, without getting off the rails here, maybe first and foremost, before I get into some of my experiments and then specific questions I have for you on some of the readings I've seen, just for somebody who's watching or listening and they're like, what the heck is a CGM? Maybe you could explain <laughs> it in a minute, how it works and how you use it. Like, What exactly is the CGM?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So CGM stands for continuous glucose monitor. So it is a small uh, device that you put on, in our instance, the back of your arm. It is a medical device in the United States, which is a whole nother rabbit hole. We don't have to go down, but unfortunately it does require a medical prescription. So that's part of the reason that we started this company is because we believe this data is so important for everyone. Like you're saying, not just diabetics, but definitely important for anyone with insulin resistance but also healthy individuals to learn about themselves. So we take care of all of the medical headache for you. And then you just put it on at home. I describe it as an easy button. You know, you just push the applicator button and it's on the back of your arm and then it stays there for two full weeks. And so you don't take it on and off like an Apple watch or an aura ring for two full weeks. It stays on the back of your arm and then you can scan the device with your phone and get that updated real time data. So it's measuring glucose levels every five minutes and giving you that continuous stream of your glucose values. And then at the end of the two weeks, you just peel it off like a Band-Aid, toss it in the trash. And then if you're, you know, doing more, you keep, keep rinsing and repeat. And so it's a simple little device, simple hardware device that's getting that ability to kind of Peel back the window and see what's happening in the inside, in the metabolic health world. Yeah.
0: And you don't have to prick your fingers. It's just a one-time application. You barely feel it. It goes into your uh, interstitial fluid. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so it's actually, you know, the there is a needle for insertion. That's always the question people ask, but the needle doesn't stay in your arm. What it does is it just inserts this flexible microfilament that goes just below the surface of the skin, and so it's only to the depth of your interstitial fluid, which is kind of the fluid in between your cells. So it's not even going to the depth of your blood, which is part of the reason it's really truly painless, and you can, you know, lay on it, you can sleep on it, and you're really not going to feel the device. Um, and then it's picking up the glucose values in that interstitial fluid, kind of constantly.
0: Yeah, you just you know put your phone to it, and it shows you an updated uh, score. Uh, do you have one on right now?
1: I actually do, but it's slightly okay, different oh. looking than the one that we have because we're testing some other uh, okay. ones out. So yeah,
0: so the, it's uh, usually um, a black adhesive that you put. I yeah. put behind my tricep. Hey, keto camper. We've been told for a long time. When it comes to magnesium, look at the forms. And let's face it, there's so many different forms and confusion when it comes to magnesium. But this company called Upgraded Formulas, they've created a nanoparticle magnesium. So you don't really have to worry about the form anymore. The unique thing about nanoparticles, it goes right into your membranes. It's small enough to penetrate the cell membrane. And the truth is most people are suffering from a magnesium deficiency. Common symptoms and signs of a magnesium deficiency include poor sleep, cramping, eye twitching, headaches and migraines, a regular heartbeat, stiff joints, anxiety, depression, body odor, and others. Magnesium is intimately involved in how you look, feel, and how you move. It's critical for feeling energetic, achieving peak mental and physical performance, and looking young and vibrant. There's a current sleep study being conducted right now on upgraded formulas magnesium, Early results so far shown that it was given to 212 doctors and they had an average of 30% more deep sleep shown on their Aura Ring with Upgraded Formulas Magnesium. Now, why is that important? Deep sleep is where your body activates its fat-burning hormones. You detoxify, you repair, you recover. How many of you would want to get more deep sleep? I'm raising my hand right now. Upgraded Magnesium is endorsed by myself, my mentor, Dr. Dan Pompa, by my colleague Dr. Mindy Pels, and many, many others. Another cool thing about magnesium is that it converts into melatonin. And melatonin is the most potent antioxidant for your mitochondria. And yes, it also helps with sleep. Look, it's much easier to replace the building blocks than to put in hormones. And that's what magnesium does. If you want to get your hands on a bottle of upgraded magnesium for 15% off, head to upgradedformulas.com. Use the coupon code KK15 at checkout and you'll get 15% off your entire order. That's upgradedformulas.com. Use KK15 at checkout to get 15% off your order. I'll drop a link for you down below in the podcast notes. So let me, let me get into a couple of the things that I saw when I was wearing mine and then some of the questions I got from my students. All right, all for the sake of science, right? I decided one of the, one of those nights I was wearing a Nutrisense CGM to go to this uh, place called Bal Harbor Shops with my fiance here. And there is an organic gelato place. And I'm like, hey, I got my CGM on. I have two capsules of dihydroberberine in my pocket. <laughs> uh, I want to see what happens when I eat three scoops of gelato ice cream. But prior to that, take dihydroberberine and see what happens to my glucose. So I'm kind of doing this off of memory. I forget what the exact markers were, but I ate dinner and I believe my glucose after dinner was 93, I think. And I just had like a protein and fat meal. And then I um, took two capsules of the dihydroberberine, and then I ate three scoops of gelato. And then I tested... An hour after, and I believe my glucose went up to like 114, and then at two hours, it went down to like 84. So what are your thoughts on that experiment?
1: Yeah, first thought is probably pretty metabolically healthy. (laughs) And that's that's sort of what we'd actually expect to see from a metabolically healthy individual is that, especially if you're taking the berberine, which helps, but is that it's not going to be too extreme. And the interesting thing about ice cream is it has a lot of protein and fat, which does blunt some of that glucose response. I bet if you had the same equivalent total carbohydrate intake, but you had it in like cotton candy or Gatorade, then it would look a little different, but it probably would still stay below the 140 threshold just because you're a, a healthy guy but it, you know it's it's interesting to see if you were to give that same exact meal and scenario to people of different metabolic health you're going to see different responses but often we actually do see some some lower glucose responses to ice cream than other dessert types i think just cuz of that protein and fat
0: makes sense yeah and i'm going to do that experiment now without the Berberin and see what happens too. Yeah. yeah. And Berberin, by the way, maybe you could explain what exactly Berberin is and what it's doing. I I think it's a a cool little tool. So what, what are your thoughts on Berberin?
1: Yeah. Of all supplements that we've, you know, had people experiment with trying, it's the one that we see the most success with for glucose control. And so, you know, and it's also got very minimal potential downside or consequences or side effects. The only side effects we typically see is sometimes GI distress. So it's usually doesn't, we don't even have that if you take it with meals. So yeah, typically about 500 milligrams twice a day with meals, we see people have significantly lower glucose responses. A lot of the mechanisms are actually very similar to metformin, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with as a, you know, diabetic oral agent. So it helps to kind of increase that glucose uptake by your cells and improve that insulin sensitivity that we were talking about. So it tends to be very effective for people in improving the postprandial glucose responses specifically.
0: Awesome. Okay. I have a student, Lori, Lori Cuttington in my academy who has a CGM from NutriSense and she would check her glucose when she would wake up in the morning and see her readings overnight and her glucose would drop to upper 40s, 50s and 60s uh, in the middle of the night, like around 2am, 3am, 3 3 am What do you think was happening there and would happen consistently? And then I'll share with you what I did with her, but I want to know your thoughts and what you think happened.
1: Yeah. So there are several things that could be happening. Uh, We do actually see people who have non-reactive hypoglycemia. So reactive usually is after a meal, which is quite common. Um, But non-reactive, we see most commonly happen in the middle of the night as you're talking about so the first question we i would usually ask somebody in that situation is are they waking during that time is it disrupting their sleep oftentimes they'll correlate that dip in glucose with an aura ring or a wearable where they're waking up or sometimes even having nightmares during that time and so a lot of things that we'll look at is adjusting that evening meal sometimes they are eating you know it depends on kind of what diet she's following. Sometimes they're not eating enough before bed and sometimes they're eating too much before bed, but also other things that we often see be very effective is alcohol intake. First asking if they're drinking anything. A lot of times we'll see people have that dip in glucose in the middle of the night. If they're drinking alcohol, again, you kind of have to get an intake of what this individual is doing. Um, and stress reduction is another big one, but I'm curious to hear what might've worked for her.
0: Yeah, you know, you kind of nailed it because she was. Um, I had her bump up, her, bump down her dinner, meaning a little bit farther mm. away from sleep, and then I had, I had her experiment with taking a a, a teaspoon of MCT oil before bed and um, mm. L-carnitine before bed, and. It's it fixed it just doing that you know the L quarantine uh, fixed it with the MCT oil right before bed it seemed to have done the trick so what do you think happened there with the L quarantine?
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. And and one quick point is it's fascinating how powerful you can make these changes when you have the data right yeah. so imagine how long it would have taken you guys to figure that out if you didn't have any data stream because you would have had to try an experiment and then just like see how she felt sleeping wise and the whole thing would have taken a month or two probably to get anywhere whereas with data you can make an experiment it's like nope that didn't work let's try something tonight oh yep that worked okay let's add one more thing and you can nail it within like three or four days sometimes so which true. is to me, the most powerful, powerful aspect of
0: that. Let me let me actually read you exactly what she said when we gave her this tip because it's actually posted it in the in the Facebook group and she was so happy. So here she said, "Hi, this is a follow up to the recommendation on the call about my glucose dipping so low during the night. I posted in the chat. I had to go see what I had though. So she said I took L carnitine." and she's asking me how much it takes so hold on a second this is the first post she said so especially for those no this is not it sorry so continue with what you were sharing about the l-carnitine and what it possibly did i'm going to find the exact post from her so go ahead
1: yeah. And so the L-carnitine is actually an interesting protocol that I don't think we've experimented with specifically. So I would love to hear kind of if you have other success stories on your end. But yeah. we do know that L-carnitine can be an effective tool for destabilizing glucose levels in general in individuals and improving metabolic flexibility. So um, but I'd be interested to hear what more data points you have on your end with your with your clients specifically? Yeah, what
0: I've seen is that L-carnitine could help stabilize glucose, like you said, but also help bump up ketones. Which um, mm. I think it did both. I think it also helped prevent the glucose from dropping too much, but then the key, it bumped up the ketones, kind of like a bus to shuttle some like energy to your mitochondria to just use more ketones. So it was it was twofold there. But it happened the first night she did it, like instantaneously. And like you said, if she didn't have that data, we kind of would have been like experimenting with things for weeks to months before we figured out what happened. So, such a valuable tool. I need to pull up that comment, but I don't want to spend too much time on that because we just have a few more minutes. So, I'll do it as an intro or outro when I do the podcast for those who are listening. Question from Shannon, uh, in my Keto Camp Academy, Shannon Valadez. She says, why does vitamin C affect the glucose readings?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So vitamin C is actually interfering with the hardware itself. And so it's not causing your glucose levels, so to speak, increase. It's just interfering. It's basically an enzymatic reaction that happens in the filament in the CGM that's measuring your glucose levels and really high levels of vitamin C. It's usually has to be over a gram. So sometimes if people get like, you can take over a gram obviously from supplements, but a lot of times people will also do the IV vitamin C and it's like five grams, 10 gram vitamin C content. And you'll see a glucose spike that goes to 800. But rest assured that it's not actually your glucose levels going that high. It's interfering with the hardware itself and that enzymatic reaction. And it usually only lasts for like one reading and then it comes right back down. So it's not gonna like, ruin your glucose data for the whole day. Um it's just gonna interfere usually right when you take it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that that makes sense. So if you're going over a, a gram, which is a thousand milligrams potentially that could happen. But if you're under that, you should be okay, is what you're saying?
1: Yeah. Usually we don't see, especially if you're under 500 milligrams, which is a much more common um, like oral supplementation dose, we don't really see any sort of change in the glucose levels. And it's actually, you'll see a similar effect if you happen to catch it at the right time, if you're doing finger pricks, because it's the same kind of enzymatic reaction that will interfere with it. So if you ever see something weird on your glucometer as well, but you'd have to like catch it right at the right time, which the, sometimes it's
0: yeah. harder to do with the finger Let's good to know though. So be aware of taking high dose vitamin C. So I found the comment. She said, first night taking L-carnitine, my glucose reading did not dip as low last night. Cool, fast result for starters. And then she said the day after it happened again last night, my glucose did not dip again after taking L-carnitine. She said carnitine for the win. My Nutrisense CGM comes off this afternoon. I'm going to take a break and then put it on next week again. So, it's so cool to do this data. And I think yeah, that was that's um, super interesting. And I don't know if you're familiar with Danielle Hamilton, but she's a friend of mine. She was on that call. Yeah. She was trying to help out Lori with that tip. And I think that was her tip. So, I want to give credit to Danielle uh, for the L carnitine tip. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I was just going to ask out of curiosity if you think it would still work if somebody wasn't in ketosis at all? I don't have the answer to that question. Yeah. It's more, I'm pondering it. Yeah. Because just general mechanisms. I don't
0: think so. I don't think so. I don't think, I don't so. think so
1: either, no. but I'd have to do some digging. Now I'm curious.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, we only have a few more minutes because you got to go. So let's continue this. <laughs> Stephanie Furr, Keto Camp Academy student. How does a long bathtub soak with magnesium chloride, baking soda, and essential oils affect the meter?
1: Yeah, so what's most likely going to impact the meter in that sense is the hot water. And so sometimes we'll see like really high temperatures. Again, similar thing, it's going to interfere with the ability for the sensor to read. It works most optimally in just a certain temperature range, which is another reason sometimes, you know, if people do sauna, they'll see a big glucose spike. And it's the same thing as the vitamin C. You might see weird readings during, but it'll go right back to normal right after, and you shouldn't be worried that your glucose is actually doing anything too crazy during that moment.
0: It's good. Okay, last qu- I have two final questions here. I- I'm curious on your, Do you know, Doctor Gundry, Stephen Gundry. Yeah. So I had him on my podcast, and I-, I love his work, and he has a theory on why people who are in ketosis long term actually develop a different form of insulin resistance. And I'm not sure if you've spoken to him about that, but I'm going to share what he said and I want to get your thoughts on his theory. He said, long-term ketosis and insulin resistance. Continuous ketosis tells the mitochondria to protect themselves at all costs and to stop making muscle protein and to produce insulin resistance so the muscle doesn't steal any glucose that the brain needs. This is why hardcore keto dieters have higher glucose We've seen this often by putting CGMs on people who have been in ketosis for six months straight or longer. We've seen flex, you know, keto flexing, what I call, but carb cycling help with this. Um, have you seen the same thing? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I've seen the same thing. What I would say is like slight variations to maybe some of the ways he's seen it. I typically don't see, typically what we see is that fasting glucose levels start to rise in these people who've been really strict ketogenic diet for a long time. Six months, I don't usually start to see it. I start to see it typically more like a year plus time of really not having any carbohydrates. And how I describe it is that, again, the body is super adaptable. If it's realizing we're not getting any glucose from the outside source, then it's going to start raising some of that baseline glucose level so that, again, the brain that's very glucose sensitive always has some glucose available and the muscles start to become not glucose sensitive, which is the same reason then in that in that individual, if they were going to go eat a birthday cake meal, we see the glucose go to 300, 400 because the system is not used to processing glucose from the outside we see it be corrected pretty quickly by reintroducing some carbohydrates strategically and and kind of doing some of that carbohydrate cycling. But I do see that to a similar extent.
0: Awesome, well, keto flexing for the win. Uh, keto yeah. keto campers, you could get your hands on a Nutrisense CGM. Work with their app, which is awesome. Their dietitian in the app uh, with thirty dollars off if you go to nutrisense.io slash keto camp and use the coupon code Ben three zero to get $30 off. We'll drop that down in the notes below on the YouTube video and the podcast. Final question for you is, what is your daily dose of my favorite vitamin, vitamin G gratitude? What are you grateful for today, (laughs) Kara?
1: I love that question. Uh, Grateful for so many things. I actually do this every single morning. So I write down, what am I grateful for today? It's a really great way to center yourself, especially if you're in a high stress job, um, you know, really grounding yourself. And what I, yesterday I went on a really intense hike. And so I was grateful this morning for just a healthy body that I can use to its full extent. Mm. So sometimes when you're doing like really hard exercise in the moment, it feels horrible. But afterwards, I'm always so grateful that I have like a physical vessel that is capable of doing doing, you know, what I want it to do, which is something to not take for granted ever.
0: Beautiful. I love that you practice uh, vitamin G every day. I do too. Um, It's awesome. My shirt says vitamin G on it. I don't know if you can see it. I love that. I need that shirt. (laughs) I'll get you one. I'll get you one. Uh, Where do you want them to go check you out? Website, social media, where's the best place?
1: Yeah, so all the content we're kind of, I'm thinking about putting out there is through the NutriSense platform. So at our website, NutriSense.io, we have newsletter, blog, always kind of putting out new content, same with social media handles, NutriSense.io.
0: We'll put everything down below. Thank you, Kara. I have a lot of vitamin G for you and I can't wait to see you again in person, maybe at the Commodore and just keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Thank you for making this available to us.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for chatting. Same, Same vitamin G to you as well.
0: I really hope you loved Kara. If you didn't listen to the first interview with her, that's episode 277. We'll drop a link down below. We're also going to put her website and her social media down below. If you want to get your hands on a Nutrisense continuous glucose monitor for $30 off, head to Nutrisense.io slash KetoCamp and use the code Ben30 at checkout. We'll drop that link down below as well. If you want to watch the video format of today's interview and all interviews that can be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash keto camp. Message me on Instagram with the word energy. My Instagram handle is at the Benazati. You'll learn more about my online health coaching program. So we could look at your blood glucose numbers and help you master it. Share this episode with a friend. Definitely share it with somebody who you know who's insulin resistant or type 2 diabetic this could save their life, please share it. And I'll see you on the next episode. I've got a lot of vitamin G for you. Thank you so much for listening to the whole show. See you on the next one.